Sometimes I ask you to think when you come to church. I know, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a radical thought that I'd ask you to think. Let me, let me ask you to think this morning. And if we were in Sunday school, I'd ask for responses, but I won't ask for responses. But just to have you think about what you think about when you hear the word compassion. Compassion. Maybe quicker to your mind is the reality of someone who has been compassionate in your life. But I I want us to think through this morning as we start about this word compassion. The word compassion literally means to be co-sufferers, right? To suffer with. In the Hebrew, it's translated as comforter as well as compassion. Someone with compassion is given to being able to suffer together well with someone. Someone who, when confronted with suffering, feels compelled to relieve that person's suffering. That is at the heart and at the root of the word compassion. Chances are you've never thought that much about the word compassion. Probably never done a word study on the word compassion. But indeed, I would guess that many of you have sought out compassion at some point in your life, right? So, so maybe it's the time in the moment when you fell and skinned your knee. Some of you have to go back further than others. But you fell and skinned your knee, and, and you didn't get up from skinning your knee and do an evaluation and go, I need now a co-sufferer. That is not what you said. But instead, you said what? Help! And who would you call on? Mommy! Right? Right? That's why it wasn't in my house. You got hurt. You cried. Mommy! So moms, let me begin this morning by thanking you for being co-sufferers with us. For being those people in our lives who are compassionate. My mom, like a good mom, listens to this online every week. So mom... Thanks. I I can remember when I wiped out on my bike and before taking me to the ER for stitches, you sat with tweezers and pulled the stones out of my wound. Mom, I can remember the time in the midst of many tantrums, because the the red hair that I used to have was honest, right? Uh, In the midst of those tantrums, you lovingly gave me space, uh, as well as trying to step in and understand the struggle. You were a co-sufferer. Mom, I can remember the times of discipline even that were surrounded by unconditional love that always ended in hugs even when I didn't want one. Um, and, and to be honest, like today, I'm anxious to run to my mommy's house, right? Uh, because mommy's house is always that place where you feel comfort or comfortable, you feel confident. It's always good to go to mommy's house. Now I realize that not everyone has had that kind of mom experience, but I do trust that everyone here this morning has someone in your past, hopefully someone in your present, who is a good co-sufferer, a go-to for compassion. And I'm hoping this morning that we might peer through the life of Elisha to see a compassion that comes from God that is even greater than the compassion that we've known from mom. A comfort that comes as a compassion from God. A hope that comes from a compassion from God. But warning. Are you ready? Here's your warning. 
This morning's text is a weird text, right? If you've read ahead, you're going, how is this guy going to connect this text to Mother's Day, right? It is a weird text. It is evidence that we don't go through the calendar here at Covenant Church and find all the Hallmark holidays and say, well, we should preach on that this morning, right? Because this is not the text that you would pick for Mother's Day. In fact, this is a text that you would look at and go, I hope I never have to preach on that text because this is a weird text. But when you're going through the life of Elisha, which we are here at Covenant Church and have been since January, that you come to this text and it's actually the final story in Elisha's life. Next week we'll look at his death, which is an amazing story as well. But the reality, this is the last window we have of Elisha's life. And we see today in it, I pray, you'll see in it today a window of hope, a window of God's compassion. So at the initial reading, you'll scratch your head, but I hope you see in this text one scene, one window to the reality of hope as we think of God as a God of compassion. You ready? Uh, it's 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Now that I've intrigued you all to the weirdness of the story, let's read the story in all of its weirdness and just picture Happy Mother's Day thoughts as we go through this text. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 through 15. Now Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying... Shall I recover from the sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him. And stared at him. And stared at him. Until Hazael was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men. And with the sword... And dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? (laughs) And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day... Haziel took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over the king's face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) What was the preacher thinking when he was planning Mother's Day and got to this text, right? Well, stick with me, because I think it's here. You ready? 
You ready? First thing I want you to see is really a reminder of this series as we prepare to kind of wrap it up, but we see it again in this text. I want you to find hope this morning in a sovereign God. This text should cause many of us to ask a number of really good questions, especially for some of you who have been a part of this series from the beginning. I've got four questions. I'm sure there are more. But here are four questions that I think point us to the reality of our hope in the sovereignty of God. And by sovereignty, I mean his absolute control. His absolute rule over our lives, that God, as we talked about last week, sees us and knows us and loves us and has purpose for us in our lives. Here's the first question. Why in the world is Elisha in Damascus? Now, that's going to take some backing up, right? If you back up just a couple of chapters, you find that the king of Damascus, this king, Ben-Hadad, who is in this text, the last time we saw him in this story of Elisha's life, He was asking for Elisha's head on a platter. Not on his shoulders, but on a platter. He was furious with him. So, of course, it makes sense, right, that Elisha would go to Damascus, right where Ben-Hadad actually lives. No, that doesn't make sense. Why in the world is he in Damascus? Well, most commentators place this story during the seven-year famine that was described last week in chapter 8. So uh, maybe in common sense ways, Elisha is searching for a place to prosper during the famine. But again, we ask, why Syria? Why Damascus? Well, I need to take you back, are you ready for this, all the way to the first sermon of this series, which would have been the first Sunday in January. I know you all remember it well. It's still stuck tightly into the fabric of your brain, right? Uh, Probably not. So let me remind you, in that text, we were in 1 Kings chapter 19, and we were in the very tail end of the life of Elijah as we began our study in the life of Elisha. Now, this is going to make a connection. Stick with me, right? In 1 Kings 19, as Elijah's life is ending, he says there's a number of things that are going to happen in your life. One is that you are going to see that Elisha becomes the next prophet. But also, through that transition, you will see this guy named Hazael become king of Syria which would have made no sense to Elijah because there is no way that Haziel had any right to become king. But doggone it, if we didn't get to 2 Kings 8 and find out that in really weird ways that it happened. Now, this is all kind of a dark passage, right? But I want us to see some light in the reality of this. That God, in 1 Kings 19, a number of years, decades before, knows that 2 Kings 8 is going to happen. He is a sovereign God. It would have been something that I believe was on Elisha's mind and in his heart as all of these things took place. Elisha would have recognized it as the fulfillment of what God had said. Good or bad, it is the fulfillment of what God had said. And God has always, listen, always faithful to his word. Why is he there? It's because God had written the story. And in that story, Elisha is in Damascus to reign, or to, to have Haziel reign as king. Second question. You ready? I know this is a bit tedious. Get, st- stick with me here. It's important, right? So second question. 
why does Ben-Hadad, remember this guy that wanted to cut off Elisha's head? Why does he want Elisha to tell his future? Why does he trust Elisha? And he even calls upon Elisha's Lord to tell about his future, to ask about the outcome of his sickness, right? Confusing. I I, want to kill you, but now I trust you to tell me about my destiny. (laughs) Well, Ben-Hadad could have had a a seer, probably had a seer, a a prophet of sorts in his court, but he didn't trust him. Instead, when he heard that Elisha was in town, he wanted Elisha to tell his future. Why would he do that? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that this king recognizes that everything that Elisha says is going to happen, happens. Why? Because his God is a sovereign God who tells him of the reality of the things that are yet to happen. And so Elisha or Ben-Hadad might have looked and said, yeah, I got a seer, but he's usually wrong like at least seven times out of ten. But this Elisha guy, like he's always right. And he happens to be in town. So don't take off his head. But ask him whether I'm going to live or die. It is a beautiful picture of how the power of God will win the day with even the strongest of unbelievers when it is seen, when he is seen for who he is. It is a beautiful picture of the power of God in the sovereignty of God. The third question, quickly. Why does it appear that Elisha lies to Haziel about the outcome of the sickness? Why does he say, well, he'll recover, but no, he will certainly die? Does Elisha have a truth problem? Is he looking for a friend? Why in the world this confusing answer? Well, the answer on the surface is that left to just the sickness, right, the king would have recovered. Elisha says, I can see God has revealed to me that the reality of this sickness is not going to kill Ben-Hadad, but what will kill him, Hazael, is you. The sickness will not kill him, but you will. That's a bit dark. It, and as it's played out, it's dark. Haziel literally waterboards the king, right? And he would die a horrendous death. But the light in this picture is that God knows and communicates to Elisha the reality of that which is about to happen. So we celebrate in this the sovereignty of God. Our hope this morning is not that God might reveal all these kinds of dark things to us, but the reality of the knowing that God is in charge of everything, every little bit of our lives. So for you to sit here this morning in this weird story, would you please just take a portion of hope in knowing that God is indeed over all things. He's written the story. And in that story, he has written into it his love for you. He is sovereign. But at least I told you we had four questions. It leads to the fourth question, which finally leads us to another point. Are you ready? Not only is there hope in the sovereignty of God, but there is hope in the compassion of God. Because the fourth question is, is there any hope in this story? And I think there is. There is hope in knowing that God sees us and loves us and has purpose for us, certainly in his sovereignty. But specifically in this text, I want us to see hope in the tears of Elisha. I want you to see hope through the tears of Elisha. You ready? In the tears of God. I want us to hear that as Elisha is a co-sufferer in this text, that God is a co-sufferer in our lives. He is a God of compassion. So we're going to zero in on a very specific window picture 
in this text to see the hope of a compassionate God. So catch the story and see this hopeful window in the midst of the weirdness of what is going on. You ready? Hazael is sent by Ben-Hadad with 40 camels, loads of all kinds of good stuff, to ask whether Ben-Hadad will survive the sickness. And Elisha says, you shall, he shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. And then this stare down. You see it? Elisha stares down Hazael. I don't know how long it was, but it was awkward, right? It was uncomfortable. In fact, it is so long that Hazael gets embarrassed. And then after Hazael is embarrassed, Elisha begins to weep. That's the window that I want us to peer into. What is going on there? Well, first, first consider the stare. It is Elisha looking at Haziel, but seeing, listen, as the prophet of God, seeing not just Haziel standing in front of him, but seeing the hardness of Haziel's heart. In fact, I believe that Elisha, as he stares down Haziel, sees the murder, right? God is revealing to him that this man who's standing in front of him is about to kill the king of Syria. But beyond that, I think Elisha sees the hardness of Haziel's heart and he sees the horrendous acts that he will do as king to the people of Israel. And I believe in that, Elisha sees not just the horrible things that he will do to the people of Israel, but he sees the disobedience of Israel that has allowed them to get to this place of judgment. You with me? It's not just, I'm going to stare you down. It's staring you down and seeing as God sees this hard heart who's not only going to kill the king, but create all kinds of catastrophic realities which we see in this text to the people of Israel. Why? Because the people of Israel have been disobedient to their God. That's the stare down. Elisha sees with the eyes of God, with the eyes of a prophet, He gets a glimpse of the story that is yet to happen, and he stares. And it brings, listen, embarrassment, embarrassment to Haziel. Haziel might be just embarrassed by the length of the stare. If you've ever been in a place in which somebody stares at you awkwardly for a very long time, that would be embarrassing. But I think it's more than that. I do believe that Haziel feels the penetration of the stare into his heart. He is actively trying to put up defenses like the words that he soon speaks. He says, what am I, a dog that I would do these things? But he's feeling, Haziel is feeling undone. I would even say emotionally naked before the prophet. The Hebrew word here of embarrassment is actually ashamed. Ashamed. Somehow, Haziel is feeling the weight of the eyes of the prophet and knows that he has been found out. You know that feeling, right? Or or, or you remember it. It's Mother's Day. Mothers are good at this, right? You you ever been in that place where you know you did wrong and you think you've covered up extremely well? And then mom just stares. And it's penetrating your heart until the point where you go, oh, no. No. She knows, right? 
Take that feeling this morning, that feeling that you know you've experienced, right? Uh, and some of you moms have even been the givers of, of that experience. But take that and times it times 10, 100, 1,000 in the real, reality of this stare and the embarrassment of someone who has been found out. Haziel knows that Elisha knows. But then something unexpected happens. Elisha doesn't go into a fury. He doesn't go into a raging wrath. What does Elisha do? He weeps. He weeps. Elisha, in this moment of seeing Haziel for all that he is, and through him the reality of what would happen to a disobedient Israel, is not wrathful. He's compassionate. Listen, this is not a simple crocodile tear. It is a lament. It is a wailing. It is sobbing. It is brokenness. Is it just the hardness of Haziel's heart? Well, it is that, but it is obviously more. Is it the death of an enemy king? Well, it probably is that, but it's obviously more. The text tells us that Elisha explains his tears as, I know the evil, Haziel, that you will do to the people of Israel. Here is the crux of the matter. Elisha sees what is about to happen to God's people, and he is broken. But can I suggest that it's even more? Because are the people of Israel simply victims in this scenario? No. They suffer these things as consequences of their own brokenness. God has told them repeatedly of his love, and they have systematically walked away from that God. God has told them that there will be consequences to their disobedience, but they have repeatedly hardened their hearts. In some ways, listen, in some ways, Israel's disobedience, Israel's hardness of heart is is reflected in the reality of Haziel's disobedience and hardness of heart. And Elisha sees it all, and he laments, he weeps. I would suggest that he co-suffers. What comes from his depth is compassion. And we know that as the prophet, as compassion flows from his heart, he is not unlike the God he serves. That God looks at that scenario and weeps. God shows evidence of compassion because God in this moment even as a sovereign God, is compassionate to his people. This is not a moment, listen, this is not one of those moments where God's going to fix it, right? This moment, this window is not a place where God's going to sweep in and make it all right. But it is a moment in which God feels it. He feels the depth of the pain of his people. And while discipline is coming, because God will keep his promise, it doesn't mean that he doesn't feel deeply in the moment. As Elisha weeps, God weeps. And listen, people of God, there is hope in this. Because we are often sold a bill of goods, are we not? Maybe even from this pastor. That God is just really ticked with disobedience. And as if there's nothing left to do, he sees Stauffer and goes, he just keeps on sinning. 
I've got to send my son. He's going to have to die and rise again because, like, Stoffer keeps screwing up. We get sold that bill of goods that God is angry, that God is frustrated, and that when we sin, God kind of rolls his eyes and goes, not again. That's not what this text says. It says that God is a God of compassion, and over our sin, he leans in and he weeps. Uh, remember when you were a kid, this happened a few times to me. Remember when you were a kid, this was my dad, not my mom. Before you were about to be disciplined, I don't know what your parents used, but when capital punishment, I mean, you know, not capital punishment, but when punishment was still a thing, right? So whether it was the ruler, the whatever it was, it was belt in my case, right? But what did... What did your parents say before he was about to discipline you? <laughs> you all know, right? This hurts me more than it hurts you. You go, oh, I doubt that. <laughs> right? You really began to wonder until you walked into being a parent and your kids just done some numb-brained thing and it takes discipline and what automatically, as much as you try to hold it back because it irritated you so much when it was said to you, what comes out? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Why? Because it does. We hate to see the disobedience of our children. We hate that they're lying in the consequences of poor decisions. And it really does hurt us to discipline them. Again, that times 10,000 hear it in this text. God leans into our sin. He sees the places that our sin will take us and he weeps because this hurts him even more than it hurts you. And is there not some amazing hope in that? As we think about what God does with his compassion, that he ultimately... Listen, sends his son out of compassion for his people in our sin to die for those sins. God does not stand back and wave his finger. God leans in, he weeps, and then he fixes it, sacrificing his son for those sins. There is hope in that. And there is hope as we apply that, this window to our lives, even this morning. Now, some of you are great theologians, and you're a bit squirmy out there when I say, God weeps. You want to say to me, well, it was just yesterday, Rick, that I was recreationally reading the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. I just needed something to do, you know. This is great reading. In fact, I was reading it to my children, right? It was good. And it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, point 1, you're right, so some of you are forming your emails, I can see it. You're, you're going through, you're looking, you're Googling Westminster Confession of Faith on your phones right now, right, to say, it says in 2.1 that my God is a God without emotions. Before you get too far in your email, right, can I help you? Listen, I think the spirit of the confession 
Because the confession's right. I love the confession. But I think the spirit of the confession is that his emotions are not like our emotions. Because my emotions are fickle. You, you see them every Sunday. I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. Right? The, the reality is I, I can go from zero to 60 in any direction at any point. That is not God. His emotions are holy, perfect, pure. Which only increases the reality of the hope of this text as he weeps purely out of holiness for his people. You say, well, can you prove that in the scriptures? I'd love to. We see it in the scriptures. I think we see it here in 2 Kings, but if you're not convinced, real quickly, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, the words of one who would become called what? Anybody know what Jeremiah is called? The weeping prophet. Is it just because like, he's really sad and depressed all the time? No, it's because God through him conveys this same message. And in chapter 9, verse 1, it's a million times, not a million, it's a lot of times in Jeremiah, but he says this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. In Hosea, chapter 11, verse 8, my favorite section of the scriptures, I know pastors say they have favorite sections every week, but this is really... One of the favorite sections of, my, of the scriptures for me. Hosea chapter 11 verse 8. God's talking. He's talking through the prophet Hosea to list all the ways that God has loved Israel and Israel has run from God. <laughs> right? And you think this is all leading up to something that's not good. But this is what it leads up to in Hosea 11 verse 8. God's speaking through the prophet and he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Evil places. God says this, My heart recoils within me and my compassion grows warm and tender. Remember, this wasn't all goody-goody here. It wasn't, oh, God's people is doing all the right things. They're worshiping so good. No, these are people that are running from God. And he says, I can't destroy you. Why? Because... My heart, which is pure, my emotions, which are holy, are drawn in compassion to you, warm and tender. Oh! Then certainly there are the two examples in the New Testament Gospels of God made man in Jesus, right? Literally, God, man, Jesus, weeping. Remember those in John chapter 11 when one of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus, has died and was buried before Jesus showed up, and as Jesus went to the tomb, he gives us the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize. You say you're no good at Bible memorization? Here it is. John eleven thirty five. 35. You know it? Jesus wept. I love that one. Now, is Jesus simply weeping for a lost friend? Well, in part, is he showing compassion by being a co-sufferer with Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who has died? Certainly. But get this, I think even more, Jesus is weeping in this instant, not just over Lazarus' death, but over our death. He's weeping over the consequence of sin, which is death. The pain that many of you know as you have watched loved ones pass, maybe the fears that some of us have over the certainty of death in our lives, Jesus is feeling the weight of all of that, and he leans into it, and it causes him at the tomb of Lazarus 
to weep. Finally, Luke 19, as Jesus comes in the triumphal entry, right? So Jesus is coming in, and they all think he's coming in to take over. He's really coming in, yeah, well, to take over, but in a different way. And this is what it says in verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19. And when he drew near, the, saw the city, saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It sounds so much like Second Kings and reveals the same holy emotions of God toward his people. So here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want us to get. That this weeping, this emotion of God towards your sin is God's voice to you today. I want you to feel His gaze. Feel the gaze of God. Initially, it's awkward. For many of us, it's shameful because we know we are undone by the things that we have done in our lives. But pay attention. As he sees your sin, as he knows your heart, he actually leans into you, not away from you. He loves. He does not cower. And he weeps. He does not roll his eyes. He leans in in compassion. He is a compassionate God. Feel his gaze. Dane Ortland is a, an author, uh, new really to the author scene, but he's written a tremendous book called Gentle and Lowly. In it, he says this, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus sees, God sees the pain of your sin and its consequences, and he does not say, I told you so. He says, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me, all you who are perfect and put together. Is that what it says? Come to me, all you who are religious and have it all right. You have perfect attendance in Sunday school. That's who I want to come. No, that's not what he says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And then I'll get you. Is that what it says? And he says, then I will give you rest. My yoke, take it upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. Feel his gaze, see his tears, know his compassion, know his co-suffering. Another quote by Ortland from Gentle and Lowly. That I'm still trying to get my head around The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness.
Jesus tells us, does he not, that he did not come for the healthy. He did not come for the put together. He didn't come for the people that the Pharisees thought they were, but he comes for whom? The sick, the ones that recognize their brokenness. He did not come with rolling eyes and frustrated gestures. He came with compassion. God desires to lean into us today to reveal his compassion and in so to give us hope. Haziel missed it. He missed it. He bypassed it. And he ran from it to his own evil ways. But not you today. Not me today. Instead, what do we do? What do we do when we know a compassionate God sees us, knows us, and, and weeps over us? We repent and we rejoice. We say, God, you are right. I am a sinner. And I'm sorry for the things that I have done that have been disobedient, that have run from you. Oh, but I rejoice in that you don't run from me but that you lean in. You lean in and love me as I am. It's at the very core of someone who is compassionate is one who sees suffering and is compelled to do something about it, compelled to relieve that suffering. We have recognized our moms are often in this place, but I hope indeed you see today the reality that God is in that place. He is our co-sufferer. May this morning we may not just cry to mommy, but we cry out to God who does not stand with a wagging finger, but with open arms. Because our suffering has led him to make the greatest sacrifice ever given. He has been compelled to relieve our suffering, and he has through a wonderful, merciful Savior. Through Jesus on the cross. Jesus risen from the grave. Jesus, who constantly now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Our greatest hope is indeed in a sovereign God. But our greatest hope also is in a compassionate God who sees our sin and does not draw back but leans in, whose compassion is warm and tender. Would you this morning allow his gaze to break you and cause your heart to turn to him to repent, to turn from your sin because he is gracious to forgive you of your sin. And then to praise him. To praise him as a compassionate God. Let's pray.